6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 43. But see, you can't really understand the good news unless you realize the bill that needs to be paid. Follow me? Now, I won't get in a big heavy trip tonight, but I just want to leave that thought with you that the, the joy in Christ in large measure is because he has taken care of a debt that you cannot deny. You can pretend it ain't there, but it has to be reconciled. And the good news is that Jesus has taken care of the whole thing. So that's the good news. So say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with a strong hand. And his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. That's what several times the Bible calls his strange work. What work are we talking about? Not the creation or other things. This work, when he comes, you see, his reward is with him and his work is before him. That is ahead of him. What is his work? It's the day of the Lord. Right? The day of Jehovah. The time of Jacob's trouble. These are all labels for the same period of time. Or the Great Tribulation. It's interesting that his reward is before that. I'll leave that for what pre-trib implications it might carry to you. Verse 11. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. That's such a familiar phrase. Let's pause for a minute and consider it. It's interesting that the shepherdship of Jesus Christ is elaborated on and emphasized in all four Gospels. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. Familiar refrains to all of us in this fellowship, huh? Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and measured out the heaven with the span and measured the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Question. Interesting question. It interests me because of its emphasis on quantitative measures. We frequently encounter phrases like this in the Psalms or in the poetical portions of the Scripture. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and measured out heaven with the span, and measured the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. You notice there the emphasis of Isaiah is on the quantitative, not the qualitative, the quantitative measures here. Isaiah is calling our attention to his precision quantitatively. Let me give you an example of what I'm driving at. You may or may not have gotten into the details, but you've heard of things like the, you know, the ozone layer. You've heard of things like the greenhouse effect. And there's a number of these ecological concerns. When you hear those things, turn the coin over 
Think about it the other way around. If a tenth of one percent change in the ozone layer somehow will bring cosmic doom, how did it get so precisely tuned in the first place? You see, the very anxiety of the ecologists is actually an articulate demonstration of the evidence of design. can't happen randomly. In fact, non-believing scientists will discuss a phenomenon they call the anthropic principle. And what they mean by that is, as they start to build mathematical models of the Earth or the solar system or the universe, and they start trying to build a structure and put the right parameters in and so forth, they discover something very strange. They discover that every parameter they deal with has to be in a very narrow range to describe the universe as we know it, you see. And there are actually almost a hundred of these parameters that have been identified. You change the mass of an electron, you change the mass of the neutron, you change the distance between the earth to the sun, you change the mass of the earth, you change the thickness of the crust, you change the gravity, any of those things. Life can't exist. If the earth's a little closer to the sun, it's too hot. It's a little further away, it's too cold. The earth's crust's a little too thick or too thin, you know, there's oxygen transfers they discover. It turns out the more they study the universe, whether it's on the cosmic level or the solar system level or down to the subatomic level, any parameter they play with causes life to be impossible. And even those that don't necessarily accept the concept of creation acknowledge the reality that it would seem that every parameter they encounter has been tuned to the benefit of man. And they call that the anthropic principle. And of course they argue about what its significance is, that's a different issue. But the point is, it's interesting that no matter what parameter they play with, and this goes beyond this time we have here, but if you, those of you that are technically inclined, I encourage you to get the tapes on our Genesis study or whatever because we get into some of this. And a number of the scientific writers have, have dealt with this very eloquently. But the point is, there is a concept called the anthropic principle, which essentially says that every parameter you measure is in delicate, delicate balance. Some of these parameters, if you change one part in 10 to the fifth, life's impossible. The delicateness of the tuning of the universe is so fragile that that is an eloquent rebuttal to the concept that it evolved by randomness. I'm always fascinated, that, especially when we study Baal or Moloch or the ancient idols that, that the ancient tribes worshipped. It fascinates me because most of us today don't view ourselves as worshipping idols. And yet our world at large has invented the most insulting idol of all. That this incredibly complex, this magnificent creation that we experience, they attribute to nothingness, to randomness. God, your rival, isn't some other God we worship. It's nothing. See, it's the most insulting God we could invent. Interesting. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? It's interesting if you change the number of stars in the universe, life's impossible. That's a more complicated model, but I'm throwing it out just to stimulate your imagination. There are a number of writers. Dr. Hugh Ross has written a book called The Fingerprint of God. There's much of what he advocates I don't happen to agree with, but that's not the point. He's a very, very bright astronomer, and he highlights some things from a creationist point of view that's breathtaking. It's worth your consideration. And measured out the heaven with a span, 
Who's measured out the heaven? NASA has in the last few years. We've measured the universe, and there's a couple of interesting discoveries. One discovery is that it confirms Einstein's general theory of relativity to five decimal places, but the other discovery is that it's finite. It's not infinite. And that has shattering implications to the cosmologists. And Hawking and Pemrose and the great writers, brilliant minds, are wrestling with that one because they recognize the significance of it. Because if it's finite, it had a beginning. If it had a beginning, it had a beginner, a designer. And that's kind of interesting. Or measured the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. I have to share one interesting thing to you that there's a friend of mine by the name of Dr. Gerald L. Schroeder. He wrote a book called Genesis and the Big Bang. It's one of the places I steal a lot of my material. <laughs> you won't find it in a Christian bookstore because he's an Orthodox Jew. I found it in B. Dalton, happened to stumble into it, picked it up some time ago. Looked him up when I was in Jerusalem because he's a nuclear physicist and he's witnessed six atomic blasts. And he's an interesting guy. Even though he's not a Christian, he's an Orthodox Jew and he taught me a lot about the ancient sages. And so we became real good friends and, and it's kind of fun. But in his last letter to me, he shared something kind of interesting. We talk about six days. Did the, God create the world in six days, right? And yet uh, we measure astro- astronomically. We know the universe is you know roughly 13 billion years old and by some other accounting. And, uh, of course, in the Genesis study, we did point out that by using Einstein's theory of general re- relativity, time dilates in accordance with mass and acceleration. And that means that when you talk time, whether it's six days on the Earth or somewhere else, you have to deal with gravity and time. Is, time is neither linear nor absolute. Jerry went and did the equations recently. Took the mass of the universe, which we now know, and took the mass of the Earth. He put an observer on the surface of the Earth and plugged that into Einstein's general theory. He took the mass of the universe and imagined yourself on the perimeter of the universe, put that in Einstein's theory of relativity. And the 13 billion years at the perimeter of the universe, by Einstein's general theory, equates to guess how long on the Earth? Six days. Isn't that kind of fun? The foolishness of God puts to naught the wisdom of men. Interesting. We'll move right on. Who hath directed the Spirit of Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? God is getting a little pushy here, you know. Who taught the Holy Spirit? I give up. By the way, if you're going to study the Holy Spirit, you don't start in Acts chapter 2. You start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And the Spirit of God brooded over the face of the waters. The creation is ascribed. So they actually ascribed to all three. John ascribes to the Son. Many places we ascribe to the Father. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it ascribes it to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. Again, an uh, argument for the Trinity. Well, who hath directed the Spirit? Who asked the Spirit to do that? See? Who is being his counselor taught him? With whom he t- took he counsel and who instructed him and taught him the path of justice or taught him knowledge or showed to him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop of a bucket. You thought that was a common expression, didn't you? You know that is in Isaiah? Drop in the bucket, right? The nations are like a drop in the bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the coasts as a very little thing. Sounds like a Midwesterner talking about Californians, doesn't it? And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn or is its beast sufficient for a burnt offering. 
All the nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. And when you watch the hearings on television, it sure underlines that, doesn't it? Boy, nations. We have an advantage. You see, there was a day that you could take emotional pride in much of what we stood for. And that's not misplaced. Don't misunderstand me. But today, as we look and we survey the tragic travesty of our government, we have an advantage because it allows us to see it in real perspective. We watch the hypocrisy of our foreign policy. We give tens of billions of dollars to our Arab neighbors without interfering with their domestic policies. But we won't guarantee loans for Israel unless they declare part of their country off-limits to Jews. Notice the hypocrisy. And I won't mention senators by name. I don't need to. Verse 18, To whom then will we liken God, or what likeness will we compare unto him? See, that's probably what, one way to talk about God. He's totally incomparable. Any dimension. The workman melteth and casteth an image, and the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold, and casteth silver chains. Speaking, of course, of fabricating idols here. He's talking about you know, fabricating an idol. The workman melteth and casteth an image. The goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold and casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation chooseth a tree that will not rot. He seeketh a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that shall not be moved. Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sitteth upon the sphere of the earth. And the inhabitants thereof are like grasshoppers, who stretcheth out the heavens, speaking again of him, he, he, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreadeth them out like a tent to dwell in. Interesting. Is he that sitteth on the circle or the sphere of the earth? What an interesting comment to find in a book written eight centuries before Christ was born. Kind of interesting, isn't it? We take that for granted, but let's step back and look at these kinds of truths that just gleam forth without error from cultures that had bizarre ideas. It's interesting to contrast these contemporary perceptions of the universe with the folklore and the mythology and the nonsense that imbued the cultures from which these writings emerged. It's interesting to contrast medical science as understood by the Egyptians, which of course are bizarre, with the laws of Moses. He was trained in Egypt, and yet there's medical insights in the Torah that are mystifying even to this day. What's interesting is not just the unerring truth in the scripture, it's fascinating to put that against the fabric of the cultures of that day. And here's Isaiah, the circle of the earth. Interesting. The sphere of the earth. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreadeth them out like a tent to dwell in. This perception, this description of space, you know, I used to think that, well, this is just poetic language because we like to think of the sky as being, you know, something. And I, I would have no problem with it on that basis as a figure of speech. But it's interesting. 
If you talk to mathematicians or physicists today about the nature of space-time, the mathematics associated with the multidimensionality of space, they will use terminology from tensor calculus, and they'll speak of a dimension being uncurled to create gravity and to create all the properties that we think of as our four-dimensional space. So when you traffic with them a little bit, I'm not recommending you do. <laughs> I'm kidding. And then come back to Isaiah in many places here. He always speaks of the, the heavens spread out like a curtain or rolled up like a scroll. That's very contemporary language if you really get into that. I don't want to get into all that here, wasting your time. But, but just be sensitive to that. If you, if you, those of you who have a technical background, don't be surprised. As you do your reading, you discover that kind of terminology. And this, of course, the ultimate of that curl, of course, is a thing called a black hole. And it's always fascinated me when we get into Genesis chapter 1, where the scripture tells us that he separated light from darkness. Now, what does that mean? See, you and I think of darkness as the absence of light, right? No. See, that's our semantical naivete, you see. You can have light. In darkness, it's called a black hole. With the gravity so intense, the light can't escape. And you relieve the gravity field a bit, and light can escape. And when you start and talk about the Big Bang, you're talking about, I think, it's 10 to the 30, minus 36 seconds. It is still, in effect, what you and I would classify as a black hole. The density is too great for light to escape. But then he separates the light from the darkness. And that thing has a whole different meaning if you start looking at the physics of the beginning. In any case, and by the way, to dismiss something else, don't get confused about the so-called Big Bang. That's a label for a class of theories. What it means depends on what parameters you're dealing with. And it turns out the parameters they're stuck with today turn out to be creationist parameters, a finite beginning of not only matter and energy, but space and time itself. Just like Maimonides said eight centuries ago from Genesis 1. Kind of Verse 23, who bringeth the princes to nothing, who maketh the judges of the earth as vanity? Yea, they shall not be planted, yea, they shall not be sown, yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth. He shall also blow upon them, and they shall wither, <laughs> and the whirlwind shall take them away like stubble. I've got a few candidates I'd like them to take a good look at. <laughs> to whom then will ye liken me? Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? One of the things we're going to discover, and you're already beginning to experience it, is that God does not argue for himself in Genesis. The Bible opens on the presumption of the existence of God. But you're going to discover that in the early chapters of Isaiah 2, you'll discover on frequent occasion, God articulates his own case. To whom then will ye liken me? This is God speaking. Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One. He's uh, calling the bluff here. Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created these things, who bringeth out their host by number? He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for he is strong in power, not one faileth. Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created these things? By the way, when you go out tonight, just look up. I realize most of you know about the Milky Way from reading. 
here in Los Angeles. I heard a great thing about Los Angeles. You know, Los Angeles is one of the few cities in the United States where you can shoot an arrow into the air and miss. <laughs> the Milky Way. If you get a chance to be on the desert or on a particularly clear night in the mountains or in the desert or at sea for that matter, you'll see a band of stars that is just, you can't help no matter how, it just it takes your breath away. It says here about the entire universe, let's just focus on those stars that are part of our little system, our galaxy. Not the universe, our galaxy. Huh? 100,000 million stars. He calls them all by names. The same thing is said in Psalm 147, verses 4 and 5. Right? If you took just the Milky Way, to count the stars, and you counted one per second, it would take you 2,500 years. Oh my God is probably the right phrase. Oh my God. <laughs> I like it better that way. That's our Lord. He created them, and we sort of figure like, gee, sand of the seashore. No, wait a minute. He calls them all by name. That breathtaking? And that's just the Milky Way. I mean, we could go beyond, but we're already beyond our comprehension level. <laughs> and how much more are you worth to Him than the stars? See, I believe when you hear the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, I can't prove the scriptures, Chuck Missler's conjecture. I believe what you're going to hear is your name. See, I think He's going to call you personally at the rapture. He did that with Lazarus, didn't he? That wasn't a resurrection body. Don't misunderstand me. But Lazarus come forth, right? Why do you say Lazarus? If he hadn't, they all would have come forth, right? <laughs> Why is it we can visualize that, huh? You see, there's some that are going to wait a thousand years. According to Revelation, huh? So he's gonna, I believe he's going to call you by name. I don't know how he's going to do it, but I know his bandwidth is infinite. He calleth them by names, the stars. By the greatness of his might, for he is strong in power. What an understatement that is. Not one faileth. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due to me is passed away from my God. It's being facetious. See, and he catches them both ways. Oh, Jacob, oh, Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And uh, in general, in the scripture, when someone's name is changed, it stays changed. Saul becomes Paul and so forth, right? Abraham becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. There's a couple of exceptions. Jacob is one of them. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. But from that point on, it's a jumble. Sometimes it's called Jacob, sometimes Israel. But when you study the scripture carefully, you'll notice that the name is always chosen to fit the occasion. When he's in the flesh, when he's carnal, it's Jacob. On those moments when he's showing some class, it's Israel. And the nation also. Oh, Jacob, oh, Israel, right? And you and I should take comfort that it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God can justify Jacob. He can justify Chuck Missler. I take a lot of comfort in that. Here he's bracketing it. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, the justice due me to me is passed away from my God. 
Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. Psalmist says, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. He giveth power to the faint, and to those who have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. How many of you have heard that before? Huh? Familiar passage. I want you to notice something. You look at it, here's Isaiah, the richest vocabulary in the Old Testament, the highest level of Hebrew writing, according to the experts, right? Isaiah. And boy, did he blow it here. Because it's not in the climactic order, is it? They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint, right? It's backwards. Or is it? Or is it? See, he says, they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The more you think about that, you realize that order is the appropriate one. You see, if I asked you tonight, let's assume that if I asked you to leave this room and the minute you step outside that door, they're going to shoot you. You got a chance to die for Christ. There's probably not one of you that would hesitate. You had a chance to die for the Lord. Here's your moment of truth. Let's get on with it. You'd swallow hard and go at it, wouldn't you? Let me tell you what's tougher than dying for the Lord. That's living for him. Right? See, the thing isn't life after death, it's life after birth. See? You're born again? Okay, you know. And see, the thing is, mounting up with wings as eagles. Hey, I'm ready for that. That's exciting. Let's go for it. And then they shall run and not be weary. Okay. What's the real test? To walk and not faint. Endurance. The Christian walk. Not the race, the run, the flying of the eagles, the walk. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.